This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I'm joined by Reed Dent to discuss a story about Mary and Martha and Jesus, which also happens to contain an episode about the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what I think. I think that this is more a story about Mary and Martha than it is about Lazarus, or at least that's the way that I'm I'm reading it today this time i do have some questions about lazarus like is this one of those double jeopardy sort of things where he dies and everybody mourns for four days and then and then you know he's raised but then he dies again later and it's like oh we already mourned he's good (laughs) are you are you trying to are you trying to spoil my whole thing so i'm i'm a big fan of uh Considering, like Ecclesiastes says, the death is the end of every man, and the wise take it to heart. And that's a lot of what I like to think and talk about. Uh, and it occurs to me, like, you guys know he's going to die again, right? Like Lazarus isn't still walking around on the earth. He's he's going to die again. So is this just like a trick that's being pulled or something? But no. I mean, did they know he was going <laughs> to die again? I, that's a great question. I don't know. But we know that he has died. Well, I think we know. Maybe he's living in a cave somewhere. But I I don't suspect that to be true. I, I assume that he is now dead, dead. Lazarus is the basis for Marvel's Eternals or something like that. Well, let me ask you. He has you, to reinvent speaking, himself in every culture. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of genius pop culture, do you know who Carmen is? Uh, yeah. Carmen, Carman, the 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 Christian singer from well, he was sort of a skit maker slash singer from the eighties and nineties, and doesn't he have this whole like Lazarus come forth thing in one of his songs? I don't know. That's part of what that's what pops into my mind. I've been poisoned. That's what I'm thinking about when I think of Lazarus. I don't know enough to actually say one way or the other if that is true. Lazarus is a very I think famous name. It's a famous incident from the scriptures, um, which is interesting because Lazarus, other than this story, is not really a prominent character at all in the Gospels. Uh, but I guess we'll get into that. Um, so, yeah, we're in John 11. I guess if you want to just dive in and we can we can kind of get going. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus, now Lasik, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair, which is a fascinating aside as that has not actually happened yet. Exactly. That happens in John 12. <laughs> yes. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick, which is also super interesting because we're in the gospel of John. Mm-hmm. And that is a phrase that is typically used for John by himself. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, they're, I a lot of these names in this first few verses they're they're interesting these people uh the place there there seems to be more to them than meets the eye uh that's a good observation <clears throat> the one you love is sick it seems like Jesus is actually really close with these not just Lazarus but also Mary and Martha uh like later in the chapter they remark look how he he loved them uh, and Bethany seems to have been a place that Jesus frequented. He he goes back and forth between there and Jerusalem a number of times. Uh, it's it's yeah. He seems to be close to these people. And yet, as I said before, Lazarus is not somebody who uh, appears. He actually doesn't appear 
uh, in any of the other gospels, here's observation number one. Um, there are no stories about Lazarus in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, um, other than a noteworthy parable that Jesus tells in Luke, uh, Luke 16. He tells the story. Do you remember any about that one? Brent, any of the highlights of the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? Oh, why do you have to do this to me? Uh, <laughs> because I want to be like Marty. Yeah, well, mission accomplished. <laughs> uh, this is the one where the guy... Is it, is it where the two guys die or something? And Right, yes. Uh, the rich man is in a weird spot, and then Lazarus gets to do <laughs> a weird Abraham's spot, bosom yes. or something. Also a weird spot. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, so, something like that. Yeah, Lazarus is up at Abraham's bosom, and the rich man is down in hell, and uh, he is um, asking for some water to drink, and there's this whole exchange, which we're not going to go into right now. It is noteworthy that this is the only parable that a character has a proper name in, and that is Lazarus. Um, and then here in John, Lazarus is a character who appears only in uh, this gospel. And maybe there's more to say about that here a little bit later on, but I'll let that lie for now. Um, it's noteworthy, too, that Lazarus never speaks Um throughout the other stories of healings in the Bible. And of course, Lazarus doesn't speak because he's he's dead uh, and dead people don't speak. However, even after he is raised, there's no nothing from him. Uh, he doesn't say anything. Um, it's Boy, that's crazy. Yeah, he doesn't I've say anything. I've never noticed that and, before. And actually, I'm pretty sure that in the parable in Luke 16, I would have to double check this, but I don't think that character says anything either. Um uh, I, I think it's just Abraham is speaking to – man, I'm going to feel really dumb if that's wrong. Um, but he's speaking to the rich man. The rich man, man does most of the talking. But anyway, so you've got that parable with Lazarus. You've got Lazarus here, nowhere else. He doesn't say anything. Uh, he lives in Bethany, um, which is noteworthy because there, there's some debate over what this name means. Uh, some people say that it means – the house of figs like like dates like a fig tree um but then the reading that i like says uh so bet honey which i'm not a hebrew expert l i'm sorry uh but could that that translates as the house of misery um and one thing to note and maybe this is a slight crossover between the parable uh there's a lot more to be mined there than i'm going to want to keep going into but i'm going to have to stay out of it uh, but in that parable, the character of Lazarus is somebody who is inflicted with sores. Uh, he's a leper. And um, Bethany, the, the town here, is not very far off from Jerusalem. It's only like – it's like less than two miles away. Um, and Jerusalem would need to have a place for like a leper colony for lepers to go. And it is – this is this is somewhat speculative. Like this is definitely not a matter of just – a clear historical fact that Bethany was such a place, but it could be uh, being named House of Misery. Uh, this is also Bethany is the location of, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, the House of Simon the Leper, um, which is where a perfume anointing happens, um, which interestingly enough also happens right after this story in John 12. Um, and it could be the home of Simon the Leper, uh, where where they end up for that story in the next chapter. Um, and so, you know, it's a home to lepers. It could be a place of lepers. Um, 
which if it is, it, it this is my first kind of question and kind of legitimate speculation here is it makes me wonder uh, if Lazarus himself could have been a leper. Um, but, and maybe that's what he ultimately ended up succumbing to. And like, maybe he was somebody who um, was chronically sick uh, living out there in Bethany. Uh, but then here, when, when Jesus gets word from the sisters, uh, they send word to him, which I, I don't know if that's, they just send a messenger probably uh, to catch up to Jesus and pull him off to the side and say, Hey, uh, the one you love is sick. Like maybe that's, that's sort of like, uh, like when we know that it's time for somebody to go on hospice or palliative care, like end of life stuff. It's like, okay, he's like really sick now. Uh, and he is, he is going to be dying soon. Um, which is why a little bit later on, it, it may not be like a, a God goggles kind of thing when Jesus is like, Hey, Lazarus is, is dead. Um, like he may, he may know, like they would not have sent word to him that he was sick if it was just any old kind of sickness. Um, they're telling him because it means like, Hey, this is pretty dire. Um, so yeah, I wonder if Lazarus is somebody who was chronically sick living out in a place where lepers went to live, which was a place that Jesus frequented. It makes sense. I don't know that. Um, but I like to think of Jesus as, uh, being somebody who practiced what he preached. Uh, of course he did. We know he did. Um, but even Bethany might be a place uh, where that was going on. Um, and then it's it's worth thinking a little bit about Mary and Martha too, um, which there is so much that could be said about this. And I think Elle is going to be getting to this later on in the Gospel of John. Uh, and man, I almost flipped out and was like, Hey, Brent, can we record this episode like next week after I have 20 more hours to think about this? Um, but I'm not going to go into all of that about the identity of Mary here. Um, but about Mary and Martha, at least this much can be said. Um, to Basically, to put it plainly, I wonder if they're wealthy. I wonder if they're rich. Um, and the reason why I wonder that is because of some of the details here in this story. So uh, one is um, John mentions here at the very beginning. This is the Mary who poured perfume on his feet, which, as you noted, hasn't happened yet. And there's John being weird with time, as he usually is. Uh, but she dumps a whole lot of very expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. Um, also, we're told uh, in verse 19, which is coming up, that a whole bunch of visitors were coming from Jerusalem to comfort Mary and Martha. Uh, and if it makes me wonder that if they're the kind of people who have like a whole, you know, community, a whole society of folks who are coming out, like maybe they were women of some kind of influence. Um, maybe they were women of means who had been instrumental in the community. And so that's why they have all of these people uh, coming out. It's not just close friends and family, but you get the sense that there's like a crowd that is coming to comfort them. Um, also, it doesn't seem like Mary and Martha are married. We're never told anything about husbands that they would have. They feature prominently all on their own and they have, they have a house uh, that they live in and uh, that maybe Lazarus is living in with them. It's not in entirely clear, but I do wonder. Uh, and also it's noted that he is their brother, um, but they have the house of their own. They have a tomb um, that has a stone that has to be rolled away, which is something that poor people uh, would not have. Um, it's, it's also worth noting, uh, so, so maybe I wonder if they are wealthy. We've also heard of Mary and Martha before in another gospel, um, in Luke chapter 10, there is a story about Jesus entering the house of Mary and Martha. Do you guys know this one? Um, where it's like, everybody's like, Hey, be a Mary, not a Martha, because 
Mary was the one attending to Jesus and Martha was distracted. You know the story? Yes. And I, I really hope that all of the podcast listeners are saying in this moment, well, who does he mean by you guys? And and they're responding in addition to me responding. Um, me- <laughs> <laughs> um, what I, yes, we know it. I, we know I the think, story. I think Martha gets a bad rap. Uh, and, and as Leanne, my wife always likes to say, like, somebody has to be making the food and cleaning the dishes so that the people can sit in the next room, like having a nice conversation. Um, so I think Martha gets kind of a bad rap, but still there's a story there about Mary sitting at Jesus feet, um, which is, uh, which you guys may have talked about this before, but I've definitely heard teachings on this that point out Mary is a disciple of Jesus, like sitting at his feet. Um, probably listeners to the podcast are not strangers to this idea, but that she is a disciple because that is the posture that is like a a way of saying that somebody is a disciple of someone else. Um, and so it's noteworthy um, that Jesus is allowing her to be that, that he is allowing a woman to be a disciple of his. Um, and so here's here. I say all of that to say this. The picture that I wonder about here, as far as the situation of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, is I picture a family who is of means. Uh, these two sisters who are uh, seem to be healthy and a brother who is sick, uh, who have committed themselves to the way of Jesus. They have sat at his feet. They have taken in his teachings. And uh, and again, this is speculative, but I, I wonder if they have left a life in Jerusalem to be in Bethany with their brother, who is, who is stuck there uh, as a leper. Uh, and they have completely given themselves and also all of their resources uh, just to care full time for their sick brother. They haven't taken husbands. They haven't taken up anything else, uh, but they're out there living in the way of Jesus. Uh, and again, I don't know that that's the case, uh, but I like to I like to think that it is um, that here we have uh, an early picture of Jesus uh, disciples truly following in the way that he has set for them. And also, you know, they're they're women. The gospel holds them in high esteem. So. Uh, that's, that's, uh, that's a beautiful thing. Um, I think that's all I have to say about Mary and Martha and Lazarus at this point. You want to go on Brent? Yeah. And I was just thinking, well, first of all, to, to circle all the way back. So Luke 16, just to clarify in Luke 16, Lazarus does not speak. So you were correct. Okay. Um, in Luke 10 with, uh, Mary and Martha, you know, it's a little more ambiguous of a situation there. I think here, as we're about to see, like when Jesus comes to visit, mm-hmm. uh, Martha actually goes out to greet him right. and Mary stays behind at the house. And in one sense, I think like because they have the culture of hospitality, Mary not coming out to greet would be very weird. Um, and is that saying something about the level of grief that she has or that... I don't know. I, I I feel like there's maybe something that that is saying, and I'm not sure which direction it's saying it from. Um, but I think in the in the case of Luke 10, where she's simply in conversation with Jesus and Martha is serving, I think, yeah, like we would actually expect when Jesus comes to your house, like hospitality is such a priority. So really, Martha is behaving totally normally and appropriately. Mary is being the weird one in that situation. And so I just think like, yeah, Martha does get like, Oh, Martha did the wrong thing. Like, well, maybe. Yeah. But also she did what everyone would expect her to do. Right. 
And I think Jesus is saying like, oh, you've heard it said, you know, you should be hospitable, but actually you got to take into account the fact that I'm not going to be here the whole time. Sure. Or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. It's, it puzzles me when Jesus says to Martha, you know, you're, you're distracted with many things. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that there is more to dig into there. Um, because I don't think Jesus would just, uh, like decry or criticize her being hospitable. So there's probably layers to that story that I don't see. Um, but Marty and I have talked about, Marty has wondered, like, maybe in a way this story here, um, and that's a, it's a good observation that you made, Brent, because maybe, maybe Martha is like being redeemed in some way here where before when she was too busy, uh, too distracted, too worried by things here, she goes out to greet him. And maybe it's a way of saying that she learned the lesson. Uh, she she could have been, um, I mean, there surely would have been plenty of preparations and things to attend to with all of the visitors coming in from out of town and with her brother having just died. Uh, plenty of business to attend to. And yet she seems to drop it all. Um, and I don't know that that uh, necessarily means that Mary got it wrong. Um, I do kind of take it as she is just so overwhelmed by her grief. Um, I picture Mary as like a very feeling passionate kind of person. Uh, and so I think that she just is, uh, she's in such a state that she's dispensing with all pretenses and niceness. And she is just being her raw, you know, bereaved grieving self. Yeah, certainly. And then as far as like their wealth, I, I do think the fact that they have no husbands mentioned and that they have their own place, that's a pretty strong argument that they have some wealth. The perfume, I feel like you could go either way. Like the one who makes the comment about the cost of the perfume is Judas Iscariot. Right. And, you know, clearly to him, it's a substantial amount of money, but you know, maybe it's like to Mary, it's not like it is, it is like, she knows it's expensive, but she says, well, my rabbi is worth it. So maybe it's that, or right. maybe it is like, no, or maybe it's more like my rabbi's worth it. And, and I'm going to go to an immense amount of personal cost to get it mm -hmm. or, you know, it could go either way. Yeah. And this gets, this gets a little bit into that territory that I wanted to stay out of, but like, is Mary of Bethany the same person as Mary Magdalene, who was a person of means, like we're told she was financing Jesus ministry as he was going around. And I think maybe but again I'm not going to get into that i'm not a scholar I don't, I don't but but whether uh whether or not she is i think the fact that she even has the perfume to begin with suggests to me that she is a person of means to even be able to afford having that on hand uh suggests wealth to me but i hear what you're saying that you know judas it's judas is the one that's being critical uh and you know to her you know maybe it's it even if it was everything she had, you know, maybe she's giving everything she had to anoint her rabbi because it's worth it. But still, even that amount to save, you know, amidst all of the other things that you have to be able to purchase, especially if you're somebody who doesn't have uh, a husband. Um, that's got to be coming from somewhere. Yeah. And the NET footnote says that uh, the nard is a plant that is from northern India. Oh, yeah. I saw that, so too. You're not bringing something uh, from northern India even if it's something cheap, like, right. Like you don't bring something that far if you can get it somewhere closer. That's right. And if you have to bring something that far, that is a great expense just in shipping. For sure. So 
um, yeah, it is definitely a substantial, not, not really gift, but a, a substantial gesture. Yeah. And so, you know, if that is the case and if Bethany is a place where the, you know, the unclean, the outcasts go, uh, then I think it's potentially a beautiful story that these wealthy women have taken it up as their full-time vocation to go there, uh, to be from there and to care for, you know, their sick brother and maybe even others. Because if the foot washing happens in the house of Simon the leper, uh, then to me that they're throwing a feast in the for in Jesus' honor. And if they're using Simon's house, that means they have a relationship with Simon. You know, they must be close with him as well. Uh, and then that brings in all kinds of implications for cleanness, uncleanness. Like if this is the case, then it seems like Mary and Martha are living perpetually in a state of uncleanness. They are giving up uh, the ability to go to the temple, um, to participate in all kinds of things because they're choosing to care for these. Uh, and that to me speaks a lot of the way of Jesus. Now, again, that's all. I don't know that for sure. Um, but I think there's, I think it's not crazy to believe that. Uh, and, uh, because it's quite compelling to me, that's kind of, I'm going to hang my hat there for now. Yeah. And I can see like, just because of the proximity to Jerusalem, um, that Jesus would maybe not on the way in if Jesus is following his cleanliness laws, Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly on the way out after he's gone to Jerusalem for a festival or whatever. Uh, he would he would stop by and visit his friends and maybe maybe every single time he went to Jerusalem on the way back up to the Galilee he's stopping and seeing them yeah that well would, you know that would make sense based on you know the familiarity that they seem to have yeah well and it is noted at the beginning of John 12 uh that six days before the Passover uh Jesus came to Bethany he goes oh. he goes back. And so that allows for that period of uncleanness before, because if he's, if he's unclean, he's not taking the Passover. Uh, And so he goes six days before, which again, like I, I'm not a scholar. I'm not an expert. There, I think are details, either way you kind of land with this. I think there are details that get muddy. Uh, But again, to me, that's part of what makes it a compelling case to believe, you know, that then maybe Bethany was just such a place and Mary and Martha were just such people with their uh, invalid brother, Lazarus. Oh, great. Great point. Okay. Uh, reading on then. Yeah, let's do it. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, He stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea, which is really weird. He loved them, so So he decided to stay put. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll get to that. (laughs) But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, 
Let us also go, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Okay, so this is definitely the part of this story that where my I start getting a little uncomfortable. Um, I don't know if you feel that way. It's, I, I, there are just things here that kind of rub me the wrong way a little bit, at least at first blush, and maybe even I still don't feel super comfortable with. But let me let me throw it over to you, Brent, and just ask you: like, is is there anything in here that strikes you as? Uh, slightly offensive or uh, makes you uncomfortable in any way or that just confuses you? Um, well, it is interesting that uh, Jesus was willing to speak plainly to the disciples. Mm. Like he's like, Oh, he's just asleep. And they're like, <laughs> Oh, cool. Well, that'll, ha- that'll help him get better. And then Jesus like, no, 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 he's dead. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, I feel like it would have been, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't understand why he did that instead of just going to him and letting them see that he's actually dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the 12 hours of day, like the disciples are asking about like, Oh, those people tried to stone you. And Jesus is talking about tripping over stones mm. or, I mean, you could trip over a lot of things, but yeah. Yeah. Th- those but it's verses... weird that that's his response. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and just the thing of like, yeah, Jesus loved them. So he didn't go to them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's weird. Well, and then for me too. So those are, those are, those are good observations. Good questions. Um, I mean, the stuff in verse nine and 10 about walking in the daytime, walking at night and having light and not having light, that feels like a motif that runs through John, the children of darkness, the children of light, uh, which I am not here going to wade into. Um, I'm going to leave that for somebody else who with more courage than me. Um, the thing about speaking plainly, yeah, and I, and I wonder why he decides at that point to tell them. So Jesus knows. He's been told, hey, Lazarus is sick. I imagine him hearing that on the side. And then he, why now does he choose to say, hey, he's fallen asleep. I'm going there to wake him up. And then, you know, of course, he has to explain to them that he's really dead. Um, I I think what is most, like, discomforting to me about this, though, is the whole thing where he says, no, this is... This is so that God's son may be glorified, uh, or even where he says in uh, verse um, 15, he's like, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Uh, And when he gets there, Mary and Martha, which we're going to talk about, but they both say, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. Um, And he's saying, I'm glad I wasn't there. Uh, And the reason why that makes me uncomfortable is because it kind of feels like the... God's going to use the suffering of these people like Mary and Martha and the others who really care about Lazarus. They really have to endure his death here. And he's like, yeah, but it's going to be okay because God's going to get the glory in the end and you're going to be able to believe in the end. Does that make you uncomfortable in the way that it makes me uncomfortable? Um, yes, I think so. I mean, <laughs> I, I struggle to see it because I am not, uh, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. But, but yeah, like if they are actually, if they actually believe that he's actually dead and that there's no turning back on it, which they like, would, yeah, they, I mean, their they, grief, right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, uh, yeah, that is, that is weird. I, I just keep, it's kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know. It reminds me a little bit of, uh, the earlier chapter where everybody's asking Jesus why the guy was born blind. And he's like, yeah, well, it's so that, you know, God will be glorified. Um, 
which if you're not careful can sound a little bit like, well, God has a plan, you know, and this is all a part of God's plan. Uh, and that is, can be very, uh, offensive, um, and, and really kind of soul destroying to people who actually are bereaved or who are suffering to be like, well, but this is all a part of God's plan. Like, um, most people that I know don't actually receive that as a comfort. Um, I guess I just try to consult. I don't know how to make this square with my sensibilities and maybe my sensibilities need to change. Um, but one thing is I just try to remind myself that this is kind of John's MO all along, like through the gospel, he says, like, this is all written down so that, uh, you may believe and by believing have life in his name. Like his whole thing is, uh, which is set apart from the other, the synoptics is, uh, I want to make a case for Jesus being the son of God for you to see that. And for you to believe that. Uh, and so I, I kind of hear like, this is what John is emphasizing here in this passage. I don't know. It, it still makes me kind of uncomfortable. Um, the thing too, that you pointed out about if he loves them, why is he waiting? I mean, that's, that's sort of a, the same. I think the heart there is the same as what I'm trying to say. Like, if you really love them, like why, why wait? Why make them suffer this first? Like, why not just go there? Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, again, that's the same complaint we're going to run into here pretty shortly where they're going to be like, Hey, if you, like we sent word to you, if you had known, um, however, I think also, uh, Jesus maybe knows that that would have been a futile effort because, so he waits two days, right. And then he travels there and when he gets there, so he's up in the area where John was doing his baptizing, which is a much longer journey. Like he's not in Jerusalem right now. Uh, when the story starts and when he comes down, like that's a long walk. That's like a day or two. And when he gets there, Lazarus has been dead in the tomb for four days. And so that tells me that like very shortly after the sisters send word, Lazarus dies. And maybe Lazarus is even dead before Jesus hears about it. In fact, that's probably the case if I'm reading the, the timeline, uh, right. And so maybe there's an answer that's like, well, he, he loved them, but he waited because he, he knew that Lazarus was already going to be dead by the time he got there. Um, there's also the fact that, uh, it day four of somebody being dead in Jewish custom is like the day that they are legally deceased. Um, apparently there was even a custom where on day three, uh, they would go to the tomb and shout the name of the person, which is actually what Jesus does here with Lazarus. But they would do it on day three to see if they would wake up. So when Jesus does it on day four, it kind of like, I think part of the thinking there is it makes the miracle legitimate. Like you can't just chalk it up to, oh, he was passed out for a few days. You know, like he is, everybody agrees by this point, he's really dead. Again, it feels a little bit like opportunist to me, like, oh, Jesus is waiting for his timing so he can do the miracle. There's something about that that rubs me the wrong way. But I just I guess I just have to I just have to let that lie because I don't know how to square it. Yeah, the NET footnotes talk about uh, a common or a belief from the third century uh, recorded in Leviticus Rabbah that after someone died, their soul would hover over the body for three days Mm just in case they have an opportunity, just in case the soul has an opportunity to go back into the body. Ah. And then on the fourth day it would depart. And so uh, they theorize, you know, this belief could have been, you know, in play at the time of Jesus and not actually recorded until later. Uh, But we, 
we can't actually say that definitively, but the the timing certainly would make sense. And where and it's in, you know that begs the question. Well, <laughs> Jesus, where is Jesus calling back that soul from? You know, like what kind of power does this person have? Like. You know, maybe if you're the supernatural shaman type person and you can just be like, oh, your soul's right over the body. I'm just going to boop, pop it back in. But it's really departed now. The guy is really dead. Uh, who Who is this person who is recalling souls from literally only God knows where? Uh, yeah. Anyway, I think uh, I think we're ready to move on to the the bigger chunk of the story now, if you want to if you want to read that. Okay, now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. And and that... Well, I'll, I'll get back to that later. Okay. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. Um, and just a note on that little phrase, uh, the the way the NIV translates it, I just thought like Martha pulls her out of the crowd or something. Um, but what it, what it actually says is that uh, she spoke to her privately or in secret so that the rest of the crowd would not be aware of what she was saying, oh, Okay, uh, which I did, I did not get. Um, and, and maybe that's just because of like the popularity of Jesus and like he had, he had gone to different places because everybody was looking for him and stuff. Um, so I, I think that's a shrewd move on, on, uh, Martha's part to not draw extra attention to him, uh, which also maybe explains, um, because, uh, where is it? Oh yeah. Let me, let me read on just a little bit. When Mary, let me go back. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside and said, you know, in secret, the teacher is here and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him, which I think lends a little bit to that, like, Jesus isn't quite sure if he wants everyone to realize he's there yet. Mm, mm-hmm. Martha is aware of that and is telling Mary in secret what's going on. Also, interestingly enough, we don't have any record of Jesus actually saying this. Uh, Jesus doesn't. We don't have a record of Jesus telling Martha, go get your sister. Oh, sure. And we don't yeah. have him saying, tell her that I'm asking for her. So right. maybe he said that and it's just not recorded. Or maybe Martha is taking it on her own self because... Uh, I, I don't I don't know. She just really feels like Mary needs to encounter Jesus here. And maybe that's the only way that she's going to get Mary uh, out there is to say he's asking specifically for you. And so maybe it's like she's not being entirely truthful, but it is born of compassion for her sister where she's like, you've got to get out there and talk to him. You know what I mean? 
Just, 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 yeah, a, just yeah. a side note, just a side note. When, when Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but that wasn't enough for Mary to get motivated to get out of the house. Right. There's something about maybe Martha, he's asking for you, Mary, and then that is strong enough to get Mary out there for, for whatever reason. I don't know. Yeah. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And man, that, okay. So I read through this story and listened to it uh, in like audio book form uh, probably four or five times before I realized, like at some point I went back, I was like, okay, no, who, who said that about the, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then I, I looked at the passage and I was like, oh yeah, there it is. Mary, Mary said that. Okay. So I had that in my mind and then I was reading it again. And then I was like, wait, what? Martha said that too. They both said it. Yeah. Which is fascinating to me. Identical. Um, yeah. Um, although Martha says a little bit more beyond that. She does. Mary says that one line alone. She does. And that's, we're going to get to that with, so don't, don't, yes. don't spoil it. I, well, I don't have anything to spoil. <laughs> I just, I just like, I don't know how I, I went through this story so many times before I realized yeah. that that appears twice. For sure. Okay. So when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked, come and see Lord. They replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Ooh. Okay. Um, couple of, well, just one thing that pointed, that popped out to me that I hadn't thought of as you were reading is that there's something about Mary being at the feet of Jesus. It happens over and over again uh, in, in the Luke 10 story that we already talked about. Mary is at his feet, sitting at his feet specifically. Here she falls at his feet. Uh, in chapter 12, she is at his feet again, uh, washing his feet. When she finds him at the tomb, uh, the empty tomb in the garden at the resurrection, she is at his feet. Um, so that, that if any of our Baymall listeners want to go down a rabbit trail with that and uh, try to shed some light on the significance of Mary at the feet of Jesus, I would love to explore that. It's a very interesting idea to me. Um, another thing that popped out to me. Oh, when they say, come and see, Lord. Um, there's it, it, It's an earlier, I can't now remember exactly where in the gospel, but uh, that is something that is said to people of Jesus, like, come and see, like when they're asking if this can be really be the one they're told, like, come and see, come and look at him. And in a way, it's there's like a little bit of a reversal going on here now where Jesus is being told, come and see. And even when he gets greatly distressed, um, that word there is something that when he tells uh, the disciples at various points, like, don't let your hearts be troubled, do not be troubled. Uh, that's what is being said of him. And so he is like a little role reversing here where he is being cast in the place I think of, uh, I, I know it sounds weird to say, but I hear it a little bit as Jesus being cast in the role of disciple a little bit here, but that's just a literary thing. I'll also leave that to the side unless you have some, uh, insight about that or observation there, Brent. Not in particular. I, I was curious about, um, that word, uh, deeply moved mm -hmm. in spirit and troubled. Right. Um, two different words there actually, but, Correct. um, I, I was curious about those words, but I didn't actually have a chance to look into them. So I would, 
be interested to see where where else those words show up and in what kinds of situations other beyond what you've already pointed out. So yeah, th- this to me though the the main thing that I'm thinking here is is this section with Mary and Martha really does feel to me like the center of the story. It feels I mean it definitely is getting the bulk of the text in the story. Jesus uh, interactions with Mary and Martha. And it it feels to me like the Lazarus stuff is kind of like a frame that gets put around uh, this story. Uh, he bookends. He's at the beginning, the the sickness and the dying, and then at the end with the resurrection. Um, but but really, this feels to me like a story about Jesus and these two women, uh, and the ways that they deal, the very different ways that they deal with their um, their loss, their disappointment, uh, their grief. Um, one thing I had in my notes here, which we actually already talked about is, uh, how you pointed out, Brent, that, uh, Martha goes out to meet Jesus and Mary stays home. And I think there are a number of different ways that you could read that, uh, that, but, but maybe when it comes to the way that they're processing, um, their, their grief, the way that they, like what they need from Jesus, uh, is, is Martha must get out there to meet him like right now, as soon as she hears that he's coming, she's very eager to um to talk with him uh to be with him and mary is is not and i don't hear the story as like criticizing that necessarily like i I don't hear mary being disparaged in any way for staying home um but it is a noteworthy contrast that she stays and martha goes um, but that there is this resonating, like this resounding line that you said confused you, uh, where at first it's like, wait, that's what Mary said. Wait, no, that's what Martha said. Wait, wait, they they both said exactly the same thing. Um, they have a mirrored complaint, word for word. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Um, which also like. Uh, it's not just the two of them. I feel like that is a universal complaint. Um, and, and from here, they're going to to branch into very different ways of dealing with their brother's death, as you said, pointed out, which we'll get to. But Martha immediately starts talking about something else, and Mary doesn't say anything else after that. Um, and 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 we'll get to the ways that those are different. But for now, I want to I want to camp for a second on this complaint, because I think in one way or another, this has been uh, the cry of of many people who have had experiences of deep or tragic uh, loss, disappointment, grief. Not, not everybody feels this way, but many do. Um, this, this cry, this feeling that is only really captured by the cry, if you had been here, uh, this, this wouldn't have happened. Um, that we all had a way that we thought things were going to go. Um, we had a way that we thought life was supposed to be. And something comes along and greatly uh, disrupts that, uh, disabuses us of the way things were supposed to be. Uh, people who have been um, unjustly fired from my job. If you had been here, God, if you had done something uh, then I wouldn't have lost that job. Or if you had been here, uh, then and done something, then my child would still be alive. Or if you had been here and done something, uh, then my spouse 
wouldn't have cheated on me. And we could go down the list of loss and disappointment and grief. Um, but, but I want to consider this for just a second. So uh, I want to turn the question around to you, Brent, um, and just ask you if you have had experiences of loss or disappointment or grief um, that, that somehow disabused you of the way that you thought things were supposed to be. Uh, and if in the wake of that, you felt something like, well, if, if God had done this or that, uh, then this wouldn't have happened. And if not, that's not everybody experiences it the same way. Um, but I'm just curious, where do you land in that experience of loss, disappointment, grief? I don't really think I do have any experiences like that. That's not, I don't know. I think I'm quicker to blame other people and not God for whatever is going on. Uh, maybe not as quick as I should be to blame myself, uh, in some situations. I don't know. I myself, like I should just say that I'm coming from a place where I don't, I don't think, I think I have yet to experience deep loss or disappointment or grief at all. Like, I feel like that is still ahead of me in my path. So I should acknowledge to people who are listening from that place uh, that I don't have that same experience. Um, I have sat with many people over the years, uh, pastoring who, who have experiences of deep loss, um, and who do, who have felt, uh, this way, who have felt like, well, and who, who have even said, um, you know, if God, if you had been there, then this wouldn't have happened. Um, which isn't necessarily a rational thought. It doesn't have to be a rational thought. Um, and, and maybe there is a like rational part of their brain that knows that it's not that way, that that's not how it's supposed to work. But the kind of visceral feeling that they have, it, like if they're being raw and uncensored, and I, I suspect for me this would be hard because I'm too much of like an analyst. I like have an experience and I think about it and then I feel something about it like a week later, you know, like I don't, feel things immediately. Uh, I'm like a five on the Enneagram. So uh, if that connects with anybody who also feels that way. That means nothing to me. Um, but yeah, I, I think, I don't know. It depends on how unexpected it is. Like when, uh, when my grandpa on my dad's side died, uh, he had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Um, he died on a Friday night. And he had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's like the previous Monday or something. And I didn't think that was any sort of like immediate death sentence. Um, I, but, but I thought that is a big deal. And so, uh, I did actually, um, leave that at the end of that week on Friday to go visit him. And on my way there, I arrived on Saturday, left on Friday, arrived on Saturday. And, and while I was in transit, he died. And that was very unexpected. And that hit me pretty hard when I heard about that. Um, but when my other grandpa died on my mom's side, um, he had been, um, he had, he had like a cancer diagnosis seven years prior and they had given him six months to live at the time. And so he just kept extending his life and extending his life and extending his life. And like, by the time he died, uh, he, he had been declining you know, much more rapidly at the end, but it wasn't so much of a surprise 
And so it still hurt when I heard that he had died, uh, which happened to be on my birthday, which was weird. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't the same because it was more expected. So I don't know. I, I do identify in some ways with the, like, I, I do analyze things and then feel them later. If at all, I guess I'm, I'm not even sure that I would necessarily say definitively that I'm going to analyze things and feel them later. I might not ever feel them later, but, uh, yeah, in, in the sense of when something is a surprise, the feeling is, uh, much more difficult to contain. Yeah. I mean, my, which is my instinct. I want to, I want to contain my feelings. My mom uh, was 18 when my grandfather, who was 45 at the time, he was killed in a head-on car accident. Uh, and she had just seen him like that afternoon. She in, in the summers between college years, she would go work in his office, just doing office stuff. And she had seen him. He was going out on a sales call. He said, I'll come back. I'll pick you up. We'll go home for dinner. And then he never came back. And uh, she she said that after that experience it was as if like the 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 feeling of the god who was always there like keeping her safe uh it was like that was suddenly gone and she always then had this fear of i'm i'm not safe i need to do whatever i can to find safety because anything could happen at any time which shattered the world that she lived in. That was not how she grew up thinking about God or about the way that life was supposed to be. And on the other side of that is that feeling of like, well, if God had been there, like keeping us safe, then this wouldn't have happened. Um, And I've talked to not just in my own family, but a number of other people who have experienced these kinds of losses unexpectedly. Um, and, And I wonder, it makes me wonder when we have this feeling or when we say this thing, you know, if God had been there, then this wouldn't have happened. What is it that we are wanting when we say this? And again, I say this with all gentleness and sensitivity, and it's not bad to say this. This is a very natural thing to feel. It's a very natural cry to make. But I wonder if there's something in us that that wants deep down, like a life that is guarded from pain and loss. Uh, or I wonder, like when they say this, hey, if you'd been here, they wouldn't have died. Uh, if it's like, there is a lot, like my mom was alluding to, there's a loss of the God that I always believed in. Like the God who is saves, saves always, right? Isn't that how it should be? And so what we're wanting is to somehow put that back, or maybe, maybe what we're wanting is just, uh, just some measure of comfort in our suffering. Uh, maybe we don't want anything at all. Maybe we just have to, to cry out. Um, but what I want to point out in this story is that when Mary and Martha each say this identically, uh, Jesus' response to them on this point is also identical in that he says nothing to either of them. Uh, he doesn't respond to it in the least. He doesn't make an excuse. He doesn't make a defense or a justification. He's not like, well, but but what you don't understand is that, well, he would have I, he would have been dead by the time I got here anyway. Or, well, what you, what you don't understand is I'm about to raise him from the dead. Like, he doesn't say that to them. He doesn't answer it uh, at all, and well, he does say that to Martha. Well, he says but your, bro- but not your a, brother will rise again, but, but not immediately. Uh, and I don't think as an excuse for his not being there, he's answering her when she says, "I know now that God will give you whatever you ask." 
Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I don't think he's like making an excuse, you know, like because because he doesn't say that to Mary, which we'll get to uh, in a second. But but the thing um, that I want to point out or that I want to read, there's a there's an article that I read called The Way of Suffering, A Reasoning of the Heart by um, a philosopher named Jerome A. Miller, um, which I would say we could link to. But actually, I only have a paper copy of this and I could not find it online. Um, it's from something called a book called the existence of God essays from the basic issues forum, um, by Edwin Mellon press. But anyway, um, he says the God that we would like to have, uh, the God who would prevent our undergoing, undergoing the deepest anguishes does not exist. And we learned this when he says the things that we love most of all are taken away from us. Uh, and the more that we believe that God should prevent that. Uh, he says, the, the deeper our belief in that God before this happens, the more shattered that belief is uh, after it happens. And so it turns out for all of us, we all learn this at some point or another, that the God who rescues is not actually the God who always rescues, not in our immediate experience. Like even here, like it says, when Jesus heard Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. He intentionally delays um, and I suspect that w- the way that I read it is that it's it's this truth uh, that 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 God who like protects us from anguish doesn't exist, and I and I suspect this is why Jesus is not trying to deal with their initial complaint. Like he he won't do anything to try to make space for a notion of God that would somehow prevent suffering. Um, or somehow try to shield them from the suffering that their experience. Um, and, and the reason um, I think is because that experience for them and for all of us, like when we experience deep loss and grief, when we're, when we're open to that and not trying to shield it, uh, we can actually be most truly pointed to the God who is there with us um, in that. Um, if I'm making any sense, um, but I, I think we do struggle with that. Actually, here's a question for you, Brent. Um, how do you feel like we tend to do with grief, like in our culture and your experience of it, or uh, the Ecclesiastes, uh, the words of Kohela and Ecclesiastes, the death is the end of every person and the wise take it to heart. How do you feel like we do with that? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm so I'm so terrible at this and I don't. Like, I, I do feel like some people around me engage it better than I do. Mm-hmm. But in general, I just, I don't know. Like, I thought for a long time, up until my, my grandpa died, that was the first time I had lost somebody who was close to me. So that was, you know, I was 25. So I went, I went, I felt like a pretty long time without losing anybody. I didn't have, you know... I didn't have like a situation where somebody I knew from school died unexpectedly. Um, you know, there just, there wasn't anything up to that point. And even after that point, I thought like, Oh, you know, I just, you know, I just haven't had much experience with this. So I'm sure. But at this point I've lost three grandparents and I've been, I've been around a lot, uh, a lot more loss with other people. And, like all, all of the stuff happens and then there's no talk about it really at all after the fact, like everybody just kind of moves on and pretends 
like they're not even like they were never even there in the first place. Like there's I, I don't know. I don't know if it's like that or if it's just like we don't want to bring it up. So we're going to pretend like it hasn't happened and the, they're just, you know, away on a trip and they're coming back. I don't know exactly what the posture is, but there's no conversation after the fact, which seems like is probably a bad idea. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I think on the front side of loss, like before we've experienced that culturally, we tend to be a culture that is obsessed with uh, youth and vitality and, you know, energy and living forever and nothing is ever going to stop us. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we expend a lot of energy not thinking about, uh, you know, about dying, I guess, and about how death is the end of every person. And when we do experience loss and grief, I feel like we tend to take a very therapeutic approach to loss. Um, back to Miller, he, he says that the way we think of it, it's like the most radical, I'm quoting him, the most radical ruptures of one's life. We treat them as no more than interruptions that should not prevent one's resuming it. So somebody dies, my mom's father dies, and the way that it tends to get treated is this is an interruption, and our dealing with this means we have to get back to life as normal. Um, Miller goes on, he says, what we want to do is seal the fissure, the crack, the break in the heart, so that it can return to normal life intact. Such recoveries can be achieved, he says, he acknowledges, we can do that, but only by closing up again the heart that in times of crisis lies open to its deepest truths. Uh, there is something about an experience of loss and grief that opens us up to deeper truths. It's not to say we should want it or pray for it so that we can become smarter, wiser people. But there is something about times of crisis that opens us up to that. And we spend so much energy trying to cover that wound up, like to, to, to live in the house of feasting and not in the house of mourning. And we do this with things and we do it with vacations and we do it with our theology and we do it with entertainment. Uh, we, we don't do super well at facing our pain, our grief, our loss head on. Um, but, but it, I well, that's, that's what I think when I look at, uh, kind of the culture at large and maybe I'm stereotyping here. Um, but even in my experience recently of people who, who have lost things, important things, important people, uh, there does seem to be la, okay, we're going to get, it's going to get better. We're going to make this better rather than like a willing kind of sitting there, um, ignoring the advice of, uh, Ecclesiastes. It says better to dwell in the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Um, I, I was preaching on Ecclesiastes several years ago. And I really had a problem with this, this idea that it's better to be there in the house of mourning um, than to be in the house of feasting. And I just kind of question, like, why? Why is that better to be there? Like, people who are in the house of mourning are there for a reason. Like, something put them there. Why would it be better to be there than in the house of feasting? Um, and I, I think what that verse is kind of saying is we're not, like, not that feasting is bad, but what we ought not to do is like falsely or prematurely try to be in the house of feasting when really where we naturally are is the house of mourning. And again, I, I hear Jesus like refusal to respond to the, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened 
as like refusing to go there. Um, I, I, one last, one last kind of extended quote here from Miller. Um, when he's talking about experiences of loss, he says, dying can begin to happen at any time. So he's not just talking about literal death. He says it can, the, the sense of it can happen at any time on an evening walk down a tree lined street at the first intimation of losing what one loves more than anything. Whenever one begins to feel something hemorrhage in one's hearts of hearts. And I love that description because that feels right for describing grief. It's when something hemorrhages in your heart of hearts. And then he says, none of us suspect when we tourniquet that hemorrhage that we are closing ourselves to God. None of us suspect that by trying to make it better and stop the bleeding that we are somehow closing ourselves to God. Um, But he says, uh, only someone who has lost what meant to them more than anything in the universe realizes uh, that there is an open wound kind of there all the time. And I realize this is kind of philosophical, but he says uh, the one who leaves that open has an experience of God because it's in that woundedness. It's in that nothingness that God calls us out of, that he creates us out of. He says it's there that God loves us. And I was asking several friends about this. And I said, do you think this is true? Because uh, I don't have experiences with, like I said, deep loss. But I, the people I have, I said, I read this to them. And I said, do you think this is true? That leaving yourself open to this is a way of kind of becoming one with the heart of God. Um, and they said, this is what they said. They, they, they said something along the lines of, I would never wish to go through the loss like this. Again, I would never ask for it to lose my dad, to lose my brother Lazarus, to lose my marriage. I would never ask for this, and I would never actually wish it on my worst enemy. And yet they also said something that surprised me that they said, I wouldn't trade it away because there is something sacred that they experienced in that that uh, I think Miller is hitting on, Um, that trying to shield ourselves or pretend like it didn't happen or just try to get on. There's, there, we're closing ourselves to God in some way. And they said, being open to it, there was a way that God met them there uh, that they wouldn't trade for anything. <sighs> it's, that's, that's, uh, it's heavy. It's getting heavy. <laughs> yeah. And I don't, this is the weird thing for me. Is, first of all, I think there's something to the idea of like the natural order of things. Like mm-hmm. if, if one of my kids like wandered out in the street and was struck by a car and died. Yeah. Like that is not how things are supposed to go. Right. Like that, that has a level of tragedy to it. That is just like, it hurts just because it's, it's wrong in the, like there was, there was so much more potential in that life that is now going to be unrealized versus, you know, I expect my grandparents to die at some point. Uh, it, it sucks when they do, but it it's also not like it's like I, I've known for such a long time that eventually that will happen. Mm-hmm. Now, if my parents died before my grandparents, that would feel weird, right? That would feel tragic in a in a in a particular way. But I don't know. I I wonder if like if I if I use that idea to shield myself from some of the grief. But I also think, like as you were telling the story about your mom. And how, how your dad said, okay, I'm going to go do this thing. And then I'm going to come back and pick you up. And then he never came back. Like I felt that so sharply 
like just the idea of her. And I don't know when exactly this was, I I'm assuming this was like pre cell phones. Oh yeah. This is, this was in 1968, 1968. So yeah, I don't, I don't know like how she ended up finding out, but just that, like that idea of sitting there in, in darkness, Mm -hmm. not knowing and just like going through all these possibilities in your mind and she was 18, like, like there's so much about that that is so wrong, so devastating. Mm-hmm. And like, just, just that idea, like just in those, it's not like you went into all this great detail about the story, like just, just those couple of lines about what happened. Mm-hmm. And that, that hit me so hard. Mm-hmm. So why does that hit so hard? But then losing my own grandparents is like, just this equally short moment of, I don't don't know. It's yeah. You're asking a good question. And I think you're right that there is something about the way things are supposed to be, uh, that it's, it's not supposed to be that mom's dad goes off and, you know, dies at 45 and is not there to see her get married. And even my mom's younger sister was only 12 at the time, you know, like that, that is tragic. Um, and yet, God did not shield her from that. Uh, and to go on insisting that he should have uh, is to insist on a God that doesn't, that's, that doesn't exist. Um, and instead, I think what's, what this, what Miller is challenging us with. And I think uh, even the presence of Jesus in the story is challenging us with is uh, to, to open ourselves up to the anguish that happens. Uh, and you know, there are no answers to why did this happen, but there is, uh, potentially the presence or the experience of a God who is, it's like he's another place. He says, it's the grievousness of our griefs that draw him to us. Um, and I, I think, a lot of that depends on our experience of that grievousness and we can cover it up. We can shield ourselves from it. Um, but then we lose out on something else on the God who wants to comfort us there, you know, who wants to be with us there, but not necessarily make everything as it should be. Uh, at least, at least not yet. Um, so here's what Jesus does do. We're going to move on cause we're, we're going long and I'm, I'm living up to my <laughs> reputation. I swear to you, listeners, Reed told me a couple of days ago that this was actually no, 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 going no, no, to be no, a no. short Shh. episode. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> well, I thought it was. Um, here's what Jesus uh, does. Here's what Jesus does, Brent. Um, he hears their complaints. He does not answer them immediately. And then you see that they go down very different paths. And Martha... She like immediately turns around, right? It's almost like she's talking out of both sides of her mouth when she's like, if you had been here, this wouldn't, you would, this wouldn't have happened. And you can almost hear the anguish there. But then she's like, but now I know that whatever you ask for, God will give it to you, you know? And like, you could read that. And I kind of read that as like, Martha, are you evading right now? Like, are you trying to somehow avoid um, and get it? And she launches into this conversation about um resurrection at the last day 
and they get into a conversation about the Messiah. She makes the confession. Um, but there's a, the, I, I can read this in a way that's like, Martha, are you like trying not to deal with your dead brother right now? Like, are you theologizing this away? Do you know what I mean? Um, and, and Mary, by contrast, she says, if you'd been here, you wouldn't have died. And then she says nothing else. She's given no words for the whole rest of this story. And instead she is weeping. Um, she is like, uh, she's crushed. And just a note on the, on the weeping that Mary is doing mm-hmm. and the, the Jews who had come along the crowd, uh, that, that is like a loud wailing, like mm. deep anguish mm-hmm. versus what Jesus does in verse 35 is just like a much simpler term. It's just like a shedding of tears. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I don't know. I, I didn't yeah. come to any conclusions on that, but I just wonder like what, what is happening because what, what you see Mary in the crowd doing is what you would expect in this scenario. Mm-hmm. So what you see Jesus doing is different and why is it different and what does it mean? And I don't have answers mm-hmm. to any of those questions, but I'm, I'm just throwing that out there for people to wrestle with. I, I remember kind of being confronted about this during that Ecclesiastes sermon that I was preaching several years ago because I, my mind recalled this story and I went to read it. And what I was expecting was that when Martha is like, oh yeah, resurrection at the last day and like, you can do anything, Jesus. Like I, I th- if I were Jesus, I would be, I would be like, Martha, like, come on, like, you know, quit, quit theologizing, quit trying to rationalize your way out of this, you know, not rationalize, but you know, she's like wanting to, it, it strikes me as kind of weird that she's wanting to like have this conversation right at this moment. Uh, the first thing that she says to Jesus. And there's a part of me that's like, Oh, Martha, you need to get in touch with your feelings or whatever. Um, but I was actually really struck to see that Jesus actually meets her exactly where she is. And, and he's like, yeah, your brother will rise again. And I am the resurrection and the life. And it's almost like I hear him saying, okay, you want to do it this way. Like maybe this is the way that she, Maybe this isn't avoiding grief. Maybe this is the way that she is grieving is by going into like discussing these kinds of ideas. Um, But Jesus doesn't disparage her. He doesn't take that away from her. He meets her exactly where she is. Uh, But when he gets with Mary, yes, the weeping is different. um, But he doesn't say to Mary, hey, your brother will rise again. Uh, She weeps and he weeps. And so what i what i see here when he he's not rationalizing defending lazarus's death or anything like that but he i see him as each as meeting kind of each one where they're at and i think he's like giving them the space to to grieve in the way that they need to grieve um i have a good friend who is a pastor of uh grief and loss and uh for a church in st louis uh and i remember one time we had a close friend whose 2 year old son like tragically just died in the middle of the night uh, and he had called us, uh, that, that morning and we drove to meet him. And as we were pulling up to the house of my friend, uh, who had lost the child, I asked my other friend, his name was Chris. I said, Chris, I don't know what to do. Like, I, I don't know how to handle a situation like this. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Uh, and he said, being with somebody who is grieving is like entering into a dance and you have to let them lead. Uh, and so you follow their lead. If they want to talk, you talk. If they don't say anything, you sit silently. Uh, you just you just be with them. And I see Jesus doing that exactly that with Mary and Martha. Like it's like you can use you can use your mind, you can use your heart, um, but you can't 
try to go back or wish that it it wouldn't have been um and uh yeah so i th- i think there's lessons here for us to learn as grievers uh there are lessons for us to learn as ones who sit with those who are uh, in grief to watch the way that jesus is with them uh and not skip ahead to the part where he's like okay boom here's lazarus back cuz as you noted like lazarus is going to die again someday uh that's that's going to happen he doesn't raise up and stay raised forever uh, and so eventually all of us have to have to meet this head on. Uh, I almost wonder if this is similar to Genesis six, where it, God says, uh, it says God saw the, the evil and he regretted making mankind. And it's like, well, did God, did God really regret mm. in that way? Sure. Um, oh yeah. And, and I wonder if Jesus is like, no, we're going to, we're going to wait. We're going to do this for glory, blah, blah, blah. And, and but then he sees Mary weeping and sees her grief and he is deeply moved yeah. in spirit and troubled, and I wonder if he has that like same sort of like, yes, you know I, I know what's happening I know what I'm doing, but I hate that it has to be this way because I hate that she has to go through this. I wonder if yes. it's like that. I don't. Yes, I mean it's even kind of a weird, like, weird situation because Genesis six we're talking about God, you know, flooding the earth and destroying everything. Uh, versus here, He's about to raise someone from the dead. But I wonder if it's like a similar sort of idea going on. Yeah, I mean, I I think that you are right on. It feels like the already not yet nature of the kingdom of God uh, puts us in an interesting like attention. There's a paradox in the way that we grieve and in the way that we hope, and you can't. Uh, grieve as if you have no hope, like right. That's what we we don't grieve as ones who are without hope, but also we need to not hope as ones who are without grief, uh, because that is also very real. Uh, and I think in the present moment, like there is a way that yeah, I think absolutely Jesus feels this genuinely, even if he knows that a few minutes from now he is going to call Lazarus forth. That does not take away from the present experience of grief in the same way for us, like those of us who grieve, like we do ourselves a disservice and people can feel that it's offensive when you're like, Oh yeah, but you're going to be with them in heaven someday. You know, like that does not register. That is not the thing to say in a moment of loss. Um, even if it is true, it's still offensive. Um, so yeah, I think I'm going to, I'm going to hang on to that one, Brent. We got to grieve with hope, but also hope with grief. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. I think we're ready to get to the end of the story. Okay. I, uh, I was going to point out one other thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> but, go ahead, please. But, yeah. No, no, I, no. I, I won't take a lot of time, but just, uh, the fact that they said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying. So the blind man situation was, uh, at the festival of tabernacles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, that conversation continued on. And then this is sometime between the festival of dedication and the Passover. Like we'll see in, in chapter mm-hmm. 12, it's mm-hmm. six days before the Passover when they're having the meal. Uh, we don't know exactly how, how long before this, I do wonder how close it was to that because I would expect, you know, a fairly immediate response mm-hmm. to like, okay, Hey, Lazarus is is back and you know we know jesus is busy but we gotta have this dinner party and celebrate you know Mm. the fact that he has done this great thing for our 
our community. So I don't know. I, I would imagine it's not too, too long before Passover, but hmm. yeah, so we're, we're, we're about six months removed from that. And this is still the thing that they're referencing. Like, Hey, he healed mm-hmm. this blind man. Mm-hmm. Couldn't he? Mm-hmm. And, and that's quite a leap. Mm-hmm. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying mm-hmm. like that? Those feel like two totally separate levels of miraculous work <laughs> of miracle. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. Anyway, but they're still talking about it six months later. Like, Hey, he healed the blind man. He should be able to keep this man from dying. Right. And it's almost like, okay, so suddenly is like healing the blind, not enough for you. Like that's okay. So this yeah, guy died, you know right. what I mean? Like what? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone. He said, but Lord said, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time, there's a bad odor for he has been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? Did he tell her that? Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> did he, he said the one who believes in me will never die. He said that. Yeah. Um, which I guess is like seeing the glory. I don't know. He did not say that exactly. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Uh-huh. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Um, I don't have really much of anything to add here at the end. Um, a, we've, we've talked for quite a long time now, uh, already this, this episode. So I, I think we can let it go. Um, just to say, um, the, that I really don't think the story actually ends here. I think it ends, uh, with John 12 when they are back in Bethany, um, maybe at the house of Simon, the leper and, um, they're at a dinner and I, Lazarus is there recline. It says specifically Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Um, and I, to me, this actually echoes the end of John where, uh, when Jesus is raised, he's on the beach, like cooking fish and he's eating. And the picture of, uh, a resurrected life, like a, a bodily life that is still enjoying the good things of, uh, creation. It's not just zombie Lazarus walks out and, you know, takes off the grave clothes, uh, but that he is rejoined into this community of friends and disciples at the table. Um, and that also the, uh, the chief priests are still planning to kill him in 12. If you look that up, uh, 12 and verse 10, I think it's kind of hilarious. Like what kind of a threat is death to somebody who has already died? Um, but also, um, it, it, you know, in a way foreshadows, you know, that, that, yeah, it's, it's going to happen. Like this isn't going to last forever, but we don't need to go on and on about that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's where I'm going to end it. I really could say some more stuff about the parable in Luke 16, but I, I'm going to leave that and just say that the, any, any listeners who are interested, uh, go and consider this story in John 11, Uh, And then the first 11 verses of John 12 alongside the parable in Luke 16 uh, and see what you come up with. And um, 
you know, let us let us know. Let me know uh, if you if you find any interesting parallels there. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) I'm already thinking about possibilities in my mind just as you're saying that. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I I think I think we can leave it there. So, yeah. okay. uh, Good episode. I will try to track down uh, the Jerome Miller piece that you were quoting from. I'll try to track down some way to link to that somehow. Okay. Maybe. Yeah, that would be good. I mean, fair warning. It's it's like decently philosophical. Like it's it's not just like popular level reading. But um, for anybody who's got a mind for that stuff, it is an incredible article. Yeah. So if I can find that, that'll be in the show notes. Uh, of course, you can find the show notes at bamondiscipleship.com. But yeah, thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast. Uh, Enjoy your wrestling with these extra ideas. Obviously, this story is uh, a massive, massive um, piece of scripture uh, with all sorts of things to to, uh, enjoy and uh, explore and dive into. So enjoy that. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Oh, Lord. It's so long. Straight to the top, Reed. Finally. That's what I was was planning on. Just don't ever, don't ever give me an episode again. I just talk too long. I can't help it. There's too many things. Too Uh, many things. Well, yeah, there are. Like, and how do you break up a story like this? Like, well, yeah. And in my defense, this is 44 verses of text. Well, and yeah. And and you intended to have an extra 11 from chapter 12 that we didn't even read. Well, and the thing is, like, I really like uh, this, the the basics when, when, as of like, you know, kind of yesterday, I was just planning on talking really about 17 through like the Mary and Martha stuff. But then it's like, well, you can't just jump straight into that without anything else. And it turns out that like the details surrounding like the people, the, all the stuff we talked about for the first, whatever, 35 minutes is actually all pretty interesting too, even though it feels like, I don't know, it feels like it should be like part one and part two of this or something, but the Bible's interesting. Who knew (laughs) people? Yeah. Right. People can just, uh, they can do what Marty does and listen like a monster. They can listen to their podcasts on two times speed and just, Uh, they can, they can join the rich man and I'll go hang out with Lazarus at uh, Abraham's bosom. Well, I guess, I guess I'll be with the rich man as well. So, Okay, sorry. I have drug-resistant allergies, and they're destroying me today. Oh, man. It's that time of year. Oh, dude. Seriously, I'm on all the drugs. I'm on, like... <laughs> uh, that needs to go in the blooper reel. I've, I'm on all the I've drugs. Cl- I have Claritin that I take daily. Uh, I've been taking Benadryl because it's been so bad. I also took some DayQuil before we started recording to see if that would do anything. Wow. Nothing works. Wow. It's uh, it's time to go. time for you to go to Bethany. <laughs> Sorry, that was a that was a mean joke. Don't put that one on the recording. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's brutal. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Jesus is hanging out there, so why not? He's probably making jokes about it too. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Go. Go ahead. <laughs>